Hi, my name is Maggie Spicer. I'm the founder of Source Beauty ESG. And what I love about beauty is its unique ability to connect us all. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. A common myth is that there are not green or clean regulations in our beauty industry. On today's episode, we are buzzing about green and clean standards, the regulations that really exist, and what brands can do for the consumers buying their products. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Denise. Hello, Denise. Hi. This is going to be a fun conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. Are you ready to demystify this green, clean topic finally? I know that I'm maybe not ready, but I'm certainly hoping that our guest is going to be ready. I'm ready to ask a lot of questions to lean into this because I do believe there's a ton of confusion, both from a brand standpoint, as well as a consumer standpoint on these green and clean claims. I think there's some skepticism on behalf of the consumer as to what they can and can't believe on packaging and so forth. So hopefully we can either demystify it, debunk it or shed some light on what really is going on. But that's going to be up to Maggie. Yeah, welcome, Maggie. We're excited to have you on today's episode. Hi, Jessica. It's great to be here. This, like Denise said, is such a robust topic, and there is so much around it that we feel like gets lost in confusion, both on the brand side and the consumer side. So what I'd love to start with is walk us through the reason we asked you to come is because of your background and your knowledge, subject matter expert in this. Walk us through a little bit of your background and how you got here to found your company. And then we'll start jumping in. Like Denise said, we have a laundry list of questions for you. So like I said, I'm the founder of Source Beauty ESG, which is a Washington, D.C.-based advisory firm. I focus on sustainability and social impact issues in the beauty and personal care sector. So I work with a variety of clients, brands, retailers, tech companies on different ESG issues, so environmental, social, and governance issues related to things like product design, marketing, compliance, of course, as an attorney, our favorite subject, and corporate strategy. And the way I got here was a little bit of a roundabout journey. Before I launched Source Beauty, my background was in sustainable supply chains and human rights. So I was a trade lawyer for a global law firm named White & Case for a long time, where I did supplier due diligence for technology and manufacturing companies. I then went in-house at Amazon, where I was an associate corporate counsel on supply chain regulatory compliance within Amazon Web Services. So really sticking with the theme of supply chain due diligence and the intersection of technology and sustainability. And what's so interesting to me now is that a lot of the lessons that I learned while working on these supply chain issues are the same that beauty companies are really starting to engage with. So the importance of visibility into your supply chain and establishing standards for what goes into your products You know, 10 years ago, tech was really starting to lead the conversation on this. And now beauty, I think, is starting to develop its own language around understanding supply chains 
and how that feeds into so much, including marketing, which is what we're going to talk about today. And it all feeds into the same ecosystem. So if you're a beauty brand, a retailer might be asking you about your sustainability metrics because the retailer has scope three reporting requirements. Or if you're an investment group, you might be assessing a portfolio brand because you're going to be looking for performance on ESG. So it's all related to this concept of data and how a company uses it, either in product design or in marketing or even compliance. And I think Jessica opened this up with the topic that everybody is talking about right now, which is, are there actual rules and regulations around what claims can and cannot be made? And where is that gray area and where is it hard and fast, black and white? I get this question a lot because I hear all the time, oh, well, the U.S. doesn't have standards for how to make environmental marketing claims. And I get why there's some confusion because in a lot of ways we have very clear guidelines, but there also aren't enforceable rules in some areas. So we kind of exist in this middle ground. And this is, you know, we'll get into this with the FTC's green guides, but we do have standards and we've had them for a while. So the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission has this document, essentially outlines the guidelines for how you make environmental marketing claims. And those themselves aren't strictly enforceable, but they can be used in an enforcement context. So they can actually be used as the basis for a monetary penalty, and they can be referenced in things like consumer class actions. So there are rules about making deceptive consumer claims in the U.S., and we have guidelines for environmental marketing claims. So we have kind of an ecosystem by which brands really do have quite a lot of information available to them within the U.S. And I think they're just now starting to realize, oh, it's actually very important for us to understand what the FTC is saying. And these guidelines are now being updated. So the conversation is very much a live one because the comment period just closed a few weeks ago for the fifth iteration of the Green Guides. So these get updated every sometimes five years, every 10 years. The last update wasn't, was not in 2012. So it's been a while, and a lot of these issues have really evolved since the last time the guides were put together. So it's been fascinating to see the industry comments that have come in and seen what what beauty companies are saying they want to see in guidelines, because you would think brands would say, oh, we don't want regulations, we don't want standards, we want the Wild West. Instead, what they're saying is, hey, I'm trying to do the work. I really don't want to be accused of greenwashing. I'm spending a lot of time and energy putting together a sustainable product or a product I'm proud of. Help me even the competitive landscape. So we'll see what the FTC decides to do. And I know we'll get into that some more in a few minutes. Will you give us a couple of examples of what is in the Green Guide? What are some of the guidelines that are there? So the Green Guides, you can kind of split them up into two sections. They have a section that applies to guidelines for all environmental marketing claims. So any environmental attribute of a product, package, or a service. And then they provide guidance on specific claims. So they have a section that talks about if you're saying your product is recyclable, or it has recycled content, or it's compostable. A lot of this gets to packaging because that's really where we see a lot of the sustainability issues. What they don't get into, which I think is just as important, they don't define the term natural, for example. 
it overlaps with the conversation around clean beauty. In the recent iteration, they actually said, does industry want us to weigh in on organic or sustainable claims? Because they've kicked the can a little bit every iteration. They're like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And at least for organic, they say, well, we don't touch that because that's the USDA. USDA has the National Organic Program, the NOP. They define organic. If you're certified organic in the U.S., you're certified with the USDA. So that's pretty clear. Brands are kind of saying, like, that's not enough. Like, there's more to organic claims than just NOP certification. So what goes in the bottle is now the FTC is starting to decide, well, maybe we should actually start thinking about this. But typically what the guides outline are general environmental claims and then very specific claims like terms like recyclable and compostable. And you mentioned enforceable, because I think that that's what people lean to is when things start to get enforced and there's penalties and fines or repercussions that come from making these claims is when everybody's ears perk up and change will start to happen. But take me back a little bit with this. What are brands that you're seeing out there? What do you feel like they're doing maybe wrong or where are two or three or four real improvements that could be made that brands could put into action without having to experience these enforcement issues. I think it's also going to be helpful to maybe talk about one of the enforcement cases because the green guides themselves aren't enforceable, but they can be the basis for other types of enforcement actions. So maybe I'll give you an example of an enforcement case first, because this will kind of give you a good basis for understanding what can happen when you make the wrong choices. A few years ago, there was a Miami-based bath and beauty retailer called Truly Organic, and they sold a variety of products, some of which they made, some of which were manufactured by third parties, and they marketed their products as having 100% organic ingredients or were certified organic or were truly organic. They really leaned in on the name. And the FTC said these claims were misleading and in some cases were just actually false. So truly organic was selling products that had non-organic ingredients. In some cases, there were ingredients that couldn't be certified organic. So there was no way that claim could have been true for specific ingredients, and they weren't certified organic with the USDA's National Organic Program. And again, that's how the FTC benchmarks an organic claim. They use the USDA. So not only did Truly Organic have to pay almost $2 million in penalties, but they were also barred from making similar claims in the future. Plus, they just had a ton of negative PR, and it ended up being a big mess for the company. This is a great example of what not to do. Just because a term has become commonplace in marketing a what we'll call a natural product does not mean you don't need to dig into what actually is in that product. A sustainable or natural claim can actually have a real basis in truth. Natural could be defined as naturally derived. There could be ISO standards that you're referencing. You could be NATRU certified natural. I think the first lesson that I would say that brands should really be thinking about is for every marketing claim we're making, how are we substantiating it? Are we using internal data? Are we using third party data? Do we have 
uh, third-party certifications that we can point to. This was a huge area of comment with the most recent green guides in the comments that have been made public is brands have said, okay, we see these guidelines. We want to make these claims. You tell us what we can do to substantiate it. Give us more to go on. Because where a brand has put the work in to engage with a third-party certifier or really source diligently according to what they're marketing a product as, they want to know that they're acting in line with FTC guidelines and that consumers aren't going to feel misled. The next thing I would say in really going off of that point is explore technology. A lot of brands are doing the work, but they're missing an opportunity to convey what is going into the bottle because traditional marketing is tricky. It's hard to convey nuance when you're just looking at on-pack language. You don't have a lot of room to say it's natural because it's certified under this program. You know, there's a lot of detail that you're missing out on. So there were a few comments that said, well, what about using a QR code on pack that a brand can update on their website? Could we use that to substantiate a marketing claim? And there are technology companies that I work with, like Bluebird Climate and Provenance, and they're literally developing tools that brands can use for transparency on underlying claim substantiation. So it might be integrating with an API that's on a retailer's website. So if you're a brand, you want to sell a product, you put that API on the retailer's website, all your claim substantiation is easily accessible to the consumer. This means that a brand doesn't have to do all the work themselves. I think it can be very overwhelming for a brand to think, oh my God, I have to update my entire marketing strategy. I'd rather just not engage. I'd rather just avoid the whole conversation and hope I don't get called out for greenwashing when I do make a claim. But there are a lot of options out there. And I think the more you can engage with your consumers, the more you can build brand trust and really drive value across the board. So walk us through, I'm a brand and I now have opportunity to walk into a retailer that has a very specific standard of clean. And so I formulated and I've made sure that I've met their standard. As I understand it, they still need to go back and make sure that whatever they've done is still substantiated. And as you've just walked us through, there are technologies and ways to do that in this evolving landscape. But just because there's a retailer with a standard that you're formulating to or that your packaging is speaking to, it is still the brand's responsibility to ensure that they have the claims correct and that they can use the language that they're using regardless of what retailer standard they're using. Is that correct? There's some nuance here. So I'll break it down kind of by the different areas within that question. I think you've called out a really interesting point, which is that brands nowadays are facing a unique situation where retailers are acting almost as pseudo-regulators. This happened 15 years ago when the emergence and really the commonplace acceptance of clean and natural beauty was really driven by retailers. There was not a lot of government standards being set by either state or federal regulators. That was getting to ingredients. The packaging claims are interesting because that's really what the green guides cover. They're looking specifically at environmental attributes of a product with regard to marketing. So that typically talks about the outside of the package, either the primary bottle, the cardboard box it goes in. The FTC 
hasn't really tried to touch what goes into the bottles, the juice. And that's really where we see the new standards around clean beauty. There is an interesting development happening with the clean beauty movement now where consumers are taking the scrutiny they put on environmental claims and they're now applying it to ingredients in the bottle and retailer standards. So Sephora, for example, has a clean at Sephora program, which they also have recently updated to be clean and planet positive. So you've got the safety of ingredients plus environmental attributes. And they're now facing a class action because the consumer perception of how Sephora defined clean did not align with what Sephora said its clean standard was. So brands are really facing a multi-layered ecosystem of, I want to get on a retailer shelf, but I need to make sure the FTC is okay with what I'm saying. And at the end of the day, it really gets back to the core issue of, do you know what's in your bottle? Do you know what your package is made of? Do you have the data and how are you operationalizing it? How are you meeting retailer standards? How are you meeting your marketing standards? The onus on brands is increasingly difficult and more complex. And I think that's where a lot of brands are struggling. They're saying, oh, but I just assumed if I met X retailer standards, I'd be good across the board. That's not the case. The FTC does not care if you were selling at Walmart and you were making certain claims and Walmart said it was fine. That's not a standard by which the FTC is benchmarking its guidance. So it's really important to kind of have an eye on the retailers as kind of one pillar and regulators as a second pillar. And beyond that, you referenced Providence and those were some of the statistics and data that I was reading about some of the surveys that have been done from a consumer standpoint, because you've got the legal regulatory side of, okay, I need to be compliant and follow these rules and regulations. But then I also have the consumer over here in this bucket that's trying to understand the claims and digest them in a palatable way. And the research that I had pulled up was that Providence had done this survey with about 1,500 consumers across Europe and the U.S., and 79% of those shoppers had real doubts about the sustainability claims. Something like 70-odd percent didn't necessarily know what clean or green or environmentally sustainable even meant. You have, it sounds like, a couple of issues. You have the legal and regulatory and compliance side and making sure you're compliant. And then you have the communication side to the consumer and making sure that it resonates with the consumer. So can you speak to kind of some of that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. And you've hit on something that's really, I think, driving a lot of the conversation is this duality that between consumer demand for more sustainable products and consumer mistrust of marketing claims. Consumers want products that are either better for the environment or at the very least less harmful to the environment than the alternatives, but they are hesitant to believe the sustainability claims that brands are making. And so where does that leave a brand that's trying to develop a more sustainable product? They're putting resources, they're putting time and energy into making these decisions But then how do they communicate it in a way that justifies the ROI for all of that work and effort? 
And I think that's really where I see an exciting opportunity for technology. So Provenance's survey really got to a lot of that point where they want to empower a consumer to ask questions and easily find answers. So the proof points that they have, and they submitted comments we worked together on for the Green Guides, actually, their tool is a proof point. So if I say I'm organic, but you don't have to trust me because here's a blockchain record showing my organic certification. And consumers are becoming a lot more savvy to what a brand should be showing up with if they want to make a claim. And what I think is great is if you're able to do that, if you're able to demonstrate the due diligence and the work that you've put in, consumers are willing to show up with a premium on those products. I think it's just brands need to strike the right balance of where am I going to be conveying that information to consumers and what's the premium I, I can get for my product to do that in a way that still keeps that consumer trust. Consumer perception is also, I'm really glad you brought that up because this is a huge piece of the conversation in the EU and the UK as well, where we're seeing much more robust guidelines around environmental marketing claims. This concept of the just transition towards a circular economy, which is part of the EU Green Deal, really focuses on not only truth in marketing, but also consumer perception because they want to empower consumers to make sustainable purchasing decisions. So I think a brand that exists within that ecosystem of, I want to sell in the US, but I'm also looking at the UK and at the EU, it's really important to understand not just where the standards are today, but where they're going. Because in the next three to five years, the ecosystem of regulations and standards around these claims is going to drastically increase. And the pressure on brands to understand consumer perception of how those claims are made is going to only become more robust. So brands have to do a lot of forecasting, which is one of the things that I do with a lot of my clients is really just help them get a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the markets they're looking to sell into because things are changing so quickly. It's exciting. It's great to see that consumers are really responding to global climate change by empowering their purchasing decisions in this way. But it also means brands have a lot more work to do in order to kind of check all those boxes. I am really interested in this idea of, okay, so if now brands are being held accountable for consumer perception, which we have been seeing for a while out of EU and UK, how does a brand gather that? How do they look at it and say, how does a consumer perceive this? Are there tools and resources for them to understand? Are they expected to conduct studies to really know what the consumer perception is of their statements, marketing, and or packaging? Gosh, that's a great question. No, not every brand is required to go out and do a consumer perception study for every claim they want to make. But there is an expectation that brands follow the guidelines that take that data into account. So I'll give you, you know, a very live example, which is the FTC in the evolution of the Green Guides. One of the big claims they're looking to evolve is recyclable. And so the first workshop the FTC is going to be hosting, which is open to the public, is on the term recyclable. In the request for comments, they specifically said, if you have data on how consumers are perceiving or responding to the term recyclable, 
give us that data. The FTC, of course, is going to outsource wherever they can, and they want to ingest as much information as possible. So comments that included public perception data or data about studies like the one, Denise, that you were referencing that Providence conducted, that is gold for the FTC because they can now understand, okay, brands, organizations like the EWG, EWG did a bunch of comments. Everybody who is an active player in this ecosystem is giving us their perspective. We're going to take a step back, digest it, host these public workshops, public forum, really get the conversation going. And that's how they will develop the next iteration of the guides. So a brand isn't responsible for doing their own consumer perception study, but they are responsible for following what the FTC is saying. If they want to say that, yes, we are following best practices for making environmental marketing claims. And a lot of brands asked for more examples. How can I make a claim about recyclability? Another point that I'll make about how a brand can, I'll say, responsibly make these claims in light of consumer perception is the use of qualifications. And that's kind of adding color to a claim, if you will. So say it's the term recyclable. Well, the FTC actually gives you guidelines for when to make recyclable claims. Over 60% of consumers where product is being marketed need to have access to a recycling facility for that product. Or if they don't, you need to add a qualification to say may not be recyclable in your area. Check with municipal recycling guidelines. Give consumers a little bit of instruction to go on. Empower them to make the right decision when the end of life has come for the product or packaging. I think it's also interesting to see how the FTC is looking at comparative claims because that really gets to what a consumer is thinking about. 20% better for the environment doesn't mean anything, but 20% more PCR than our prior version will allow a consumer to say, oh, okay, well, I now understand on what basis this product is better for the environment. So it's really about empowering consumers and giving them those data points that they can use to make better purchasing decisions. When reading some of this information and the data and the studies, I agree with you. I think it's interesting to see how consumers are helped driving the legal ramifications and the legal rules and regulations. So a brand can actually do two things, if I'm hearing you correctly. One, they can follow the rules and regulations as they're already written but they can also start to look at consumer sentiments and consumer trends to understand what could be coming. And I know one of the things when I was reading that I thought was interesting was brands seem to be over-indexing their claims when it comes to natural and animal welfare, where consumers seem to acknowledge that that's an area for claims and so forth, but they really also want to talk about waste, treatment of workers, climate change impact, commitment to community. So brands really need to be doing both, watching what's happening at a legal level, but then also looking at this consumer piece. So do you have any feedback on that? Yeah, absolutely. This is why, you know, when I was putting together the advisory firm that I have now, 
I call I use the term ESG because that's a broad umbrella for both sustainability and social impact issues. And where, you know, 20 years ago, it was enough for a brand to say, we use natural ingredients. Now that just isn't enough because consumers are becoming much more savvy to all of the environmental and social impact areas that affect all the consumer products that they use. And there are areas where we're starting to see a much more sophisticated conversation around supply chain sourcing. So things like color cosmetics frequently will use mica. Mica has very strong ties to child labor, depending on which country it's sourced in. So it may be as simple as establishing, yes, we have a responsible mica sourcing program, and this is the third-party organization that we use to help us make that claim. What I also get very excited about seeing is sophisticated tools that typically only really big companies used to engage in, like a life cycle analysis or doing something like an impact or an ESG report. Now we're seeing much smaller companies take that on and do it in a way that's authentic to them and and to their size and scale. So the new company, for example, they're a, a supplement wellness company. They have a great impact report that they did at the end of last year, and it outlined, here's what we're doing on sustainability and packaging. Here's our sourcing and transparency. They really hit all the issues that, Denise, you were just talking about. Estee Lauder did the same thing, but their report was 130 pages for the last fiscal year. So there are ways for brands to engage with this process of understanding social impact and sustainability in a scalable way. This isn't something where, you know, you need to hire a full team and it's a $100,000 investment right off the bat. You can scale the way you approach these issues. And what's really exciting to me is you can bring consumers along for that journey. So you can start saying, we're engaging in this process. We're starting to look at our supply chain. Hey, consumer, what is the issue as somebody who buys our product? What are the top three issues for you? What do you want to see us engaging in? And over the next year, let's bring you into our process for how we start to think about our carbon footprint, how we start to responsibly source maybe one or two natural or naturally derived ingredients that we use. You don't have to aim for perfection, but consumers really like the authenticity that being brought into the process entails. It's so true about the environmental perfection side. I think it gets very intimidating thinking that you have to be exactly 100% something, 100% doing this correctly. When what I heard you say earlier was even just making the claim you're 20% more recyclable than previous packaging or previous versions, it's about the steps to get a little bit better. And I think that's interesting as these brands build their communities, we see communities defend the brand too as they get better because no one's going to be the best at it. It, These are always changing. We learn new things that then suddenly we thought, hey, glass was the best option, but now there's certain things about glass that that doesn't make it the exact perfect option. So I think it's really interesting Maggie, what are one or two pieces of advice that you give your clients? They're already established. They're in the marketplace. What are kind of one or two things you say when you're looking at their packaging or at their environmental claims that just really kind of generically help a lot of different brands? The first is substantiation. 
it's sometimes as easy as an exercise that I do with some of my clients where we will make a matrix of every claim they're making across the board on social media, on PAC, on their website. And then we will say, what did you do to back that up? You know, if a consumer comes knocking or the FTC comes knocking, what did you do to justify X, Y, and Z claim? And what I like about that exercise is it starts a conversation between the marketing team, between the product development team. It really gets everybody in a company involved because a lot of times it's not just one or two people that have visibility on how a claim gets substantiated. And it's really important that everyone has visibility. Operations, right? Like the supply chain, that procurement, getting them involved. Absolutely. Exactly. And then we'll sometimes develop a list of questions for smaller companies. They don't you know, it might be two or three people that are filling all those roles. So what are the questions you want to be asking your packaging supplier and your ingredient suppliers? Because they probably will have the data that you should have on hand to substantiate your claims. And then the second is realizing that it's just, it's never too late and it's never too early to start the process. Like today is the best and tomorrow is the second best day to start engaging on these issues. If you have a product that's already on the shelf, it's a lot harder to go back and implement sustainability and social impact kind of operational changes than it is for something that you're already developing. Even if it's just an idea you're bouncing around, figuring out, okay, what's the ideal packaging we want to put that in? You don't want to have to go back to a cosmetic chemist and say, I need you to rerun stability testing because I just decided aluminum was better <laughs> than glass. So it's kind of having all of those all of those concepts together at the earliest point you can. And that'll just make things run as smoothly as possible. It also empowers you to bring consumers into the process. I love seeing what brands are doing, even on, on kind of traditional social media like Instagram, where they will talk about, okay, well, I'm sitting here with a packaging supplier. We're going through, you know, 15 iterations of stability testing because I want the product that's in your hands to be the best version, not just of, you know, the effectiveness of the juice, but I want to know that the carbon footprint was the best version that it could have been to keep the stability of the product intact. I love seeing that that's in a brand's mind at the, the stage of product development, not just we put a product in a package and then we use some recycled paper for the box. I think it's it's just a more elevated way to show your sophistication on these issues. And it gives you a competitive advantage because younger consumers, I mean, Gen Z consumers are much harder to fool than I'll admit that I probably was at their age. Like they know the questions to ask and they expect to see the legwork that went into producing those products. Maggie, it's been delightful to have you on the show today, and you've given us a good start for information and some good resources to pull, but we know our audience is going to want to reach out to you. You've got just a great library of information and knowledge, so if they want to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. I always welcome to answer any questions or um, respond to outreach. My email is maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E, at sourcebeauty.co. And people are also welcome to reach out on LinkedIn, where I'm just at Maggie Spicer. I share a lot of content over there. It's an interesting platform, I think, for the beauty community, because especially with all these regulatory changes, it's a nice intersection for brands that are looking for regulatory updates, PD updates, a little bit of everything. So email and LinkedIn is a great way to reach out. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And we want to have you back at some point. I think we say that to every guest just because we get so much great information, but it's true. So if you want to keep buzzing with us, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>